At one point, we were trying to be realistic, really realistic that, okay, we're just going to have to cut our losses and it's going to be several hundred thousand dollars lost. And, you know, okay, we're going to have to rip that Band-Aid off and deal with it. And, you know, that might still be the case. I don't think it's going to be the case, but we hope it's not the case. But sometimes something that you go in with thinking it's going to go a certain way, you know, you have to make, you have to be flexible to make changes. Welcome to the Good Stewards Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to seasoned real estate investors who want to maximize the cash flow potential in their business. We are buy and hold investors with a thousand plus properties and markets across the U.S. who bring an insider's view into the nitty gritty details of real estate investing. If you're looking to develop the mindset, teams, and systems that can dramatically build your real estate business and net worth, you're in the right place. Welcome to this episode of the Good Stewards Podcast. I'm Ryan Dossey. I'm Amanda Perkins. I'm Bill Sirius. And I'm Andrew Sirius. Great to have you join us today. We've got a really interesting topic, but before we get into it, uh, please subscribe. Uh, go to thegoodstewards.com. Uh, lend us your comments. Uh, get the word out. We'd appreciate it. We're going to talk about when do you sell a property? And um, the question is, maybe uh, that hangs over everything is how is this COVID-19 going to affect this issue? And I look forward to the day that we're not going to mention COVID-19 in our podcast, but that day is not today. As a matter of fact, yesterday I was in Indianapolis traveling uh, with Andrew and uh, another one of our partners, and uh, we were coming back. And of course, the plane was just virtually empty on both going there from Kansas City and coming back. But what was interesting is that we actually ate in a restaurant and I didn't think about it till about halfway through. And I thought, oh, this is so unusual. We're, we're in an airport restaurant. It wasn't a regular restaurant. But the fact was we were sitting down with other people fairly close. There's a waitress who didn't have a mask on and she was touching a lot of things and we were touching a lot of things. And it was kind of it was a little bit creepy Probably for nice. me, to be honest with you. It's kind of like, OK, which one of these things is going to yeah, is going to give me COVID or am I going to somehow come into contact with it? I just kind of had to shut my mind off of those things because I think we've all become pretty darn germaphobic. I was never germaphobic before, but all of a sudden now I am. Obviously, we're creating new habits in our culture and those habits are going to play out over time. We're just going to have to see where they go. But we're real estate guys and gals, and we want to talk about how that affects us. So here's our topic. When do you decide to sell a property? So I've got one particular property in mind recently that we decided to sell. Um, it was actually a pretty good rental for us. We had no problem renting it out. We had pretty solid equity margins in it. But with kind of some of the uncertainty going on in the marketplace and us not knowing what rent collection would look like, uh, we decided that it, it probably made sense for us to have a little bit more cash on hand. So the property was a fairly nice um, vinyl village. I think it was built like 2003 or four, four bedrooms, two and a half bath, attached two car garage, kind of in like a satellite uh, neighborhood off of Indianapolis. Now, we did get the benefit of some appreciation, which doesn't happen very quickly in Indianapolis normally. Um, when we bought the property about a year and a half ago, I think we thought it was worth 140. 
we uh, like this is in the midst of COVID, like two or three weeks ago was when we listed this thing. And uh, we ran comps and they came in actually quite a bit higher than we thought they would. They came in at about a hundred and hundred and sixty thousand. And, uh, you know, these were like nicer granite homeowner, like had been upgraded from builder grade materials, whereas, you know, ours was all original. <laughs> so we decided let's kind of test our luck and throw it out at 160 and see what happens. And within 72 hours, we had multiple offers. We sold to a 20 or 25% down conventional buyer for 5,000 over asking uh, it didn't appraise, which didn't surprise me. <laughs> so we had to reduce to 162,000. And I want to say, Amanda, we're all in for about 104. Is that correct? That sounds, that sounds about right. So our it might be 110, but it's not, it's, it's in that neighborhood. I know so it's our pretty net good. to us is like 42, 45, somewhere in there. So, I mean, obviously the benefits to that, right? that covers a lot of tenants that decide not to pay rent for a month, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I, I think it really is kind of a matter of, are you in this business for the long haul? And I, I think when you're in this business for the long haul, there are times that you have to take a, a couple steps backwards in order to move forwards. And that could be, uh, you know, you blew a rehab budget and the property can't burr, you had a substantial repair come up that you weren't expecting. And I don't know, I think it's just, it's wise as you're going through business to realize that sometimes everything isn't going to go according to plan. And uh, that may mean pivoting and selling a property that initially you hadn't planned on selling. Um, now, this is a property that, you know, obviously we would have loved to have kept, but it was one of our vacants that came up. We did a turn on it and uh, decided you know, let's just kind of throw it out there and see what happens. Um, we were not motivated sellers by any means on this deal. It was really kind of a, if somebody buys it from us at a great price, we'll sell it. And, and that's actually a really good place to be because I have been a motivated seller before and that um, it's been a number of years now, but boy, that's a bad place to be when you have to sell something. So far better to do some pre-planning and not get yourself in a situation where you are illiquid to the point where, you know, it's do or die. So I think this is solid pre-planning to well, think about. Just to be completely transparent about it, to build a long-term buy and hold company, it's very hard to hold every single thing and try to build your rental management company what? and try to cover all of your overhead <laughs> as you're making that happen. And so I don't think it's realistic to think I'm going to hold every single thing I buy and wait until I get enough doors down to cover that overhead and all of that. And if you're a, if you're just a, a one person and you are the overhead and all of that, you might be able to make it work a little bit better. But the way that we've run our business model, you know, you don't just build your whole company and you have zero dollars into it. So along the way, as you, if you want to be building a company, you're really going to have to think about how, what's my short-term plan? How do I cover my overhead? How do I cover, you know, the extra costs of just doing business that property cash flow doesn't cover? Because I mean, we, especially if you run the numbers on single family houses, there's some markets that they cash flow better than others. And it, you know, it depends on what you're in, but it really is about, you need a really 
large, strong portfolio to build enough cash flow for you to, you know, be looking towards the future and having that property management company that you want to run. And so you have to think about how you're going to get there. And in this case, like in Indianapolis, we needed, we needed to sell that in order to cover our overhead, pay for our property management, all that sort of stuff. And that's just part of business. And yeah, it would be great to keep every single property, especially when you're looking at it like, I could burn out. This would be a great thing for me to hold, but it's probably not realistic unless you're starting with a big giant pot of money in your bank account that you're full on ready to like leave in your business for the next 25 to 50 years. If you're new to this business and think that like buy and hold investing is easy and you know, cash flow just pours in like mailbox money, you should go back and, and re-listen to what Amanda just said. So it's pretty much like uh, you now know who's behind the curtain. That's Oz, <laughs> right? It's it's not this fairy tale like, well, my freedom number says that I just need five rentals and then everything's like, no, this is, this is uh, you know, that may work if you're going to buy 10 units and self-manage them and self-maintain them. And, and if that's what you want, that's totally fine. If you're looking at a larger portfolio where you're bringing in things like staff, um, it's not that simple. Uh, so I'd highly, highly recommend like replaying that as much as it's going to hurt to hear, <laughs> but I think it's better to know what's reality. A lot of it depends on whether you manage yourself or hire out management or build a management company. If you manage yourself, it is possible, but also your time is worth something. Your growth is one limited. You can only manage so many and it's going to take more time to get there. If you're not managing, and there's sort of this uh, almost the myth of cash flow. Like, one, you're not going to cash flow that much. And if you're making $100 a month off each unit, you need a lot of units to live off of. But there's another, con- if, you're, if you're familiar with accounting, the w- kind of the way to think, you're making $100 a month is kind of the way to think of like your, your, uh, your, your gross income. You know, your, 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 the, the costs of the property itself are the costs of goods sold. But that doesn't include the operating expenses, the fixed expenses uh, that you also have to pay for and above. So you have like, okay, the property takes this much to run and it makes this profit. Okay, well, this product cost makes this profit when you sell, when you take a look at all the goods and, and, and work that goes into it. But then we have our operating costs and our fixed expenses and all the rest of that. And if you have a management company or more or build your own, um, those costs are not going to be paid for by buy and hold rentals very quickly. And so, or, or if you're buying passively, you know, it's just going to take a long time to replace that. Cash flow is great, but it's mostly to make sure that you're not building a giant Ponzi scheme. It takes a while to get there. The way you build wealth and buy and hold real estate is to build up your equity. And then, and that takes time. You know, right now we're uh, <clears throat> debating and you should never do this, but uh, you should always go into a property purchase knowing how you're going to exit. And uh, I think we've decided to hold this property. It's a uh, property in Springfield, Oregon. Uh, it's on 59th street. We bought it. What did we close out on Monday, Amanda, like two mm, days ago? No, uh, last week. What was it? Was that okay. the SEO one or is it a different one? Uh, it's a different one. It's okay. a different one. And, uh, it's a really great, it was built in 2002. It's, it's a little bit better than a vinyl village. It's a little bit nicer subdivision. Um, it's kind of at the top in terms of being like, we will barely cash flow. You know, we, we hope to basically break even with PITI and some main maintenance and management expenses thrown in there. So uh, it's hard to cash flow in, 
in this in the West Coast, basically. So we bought it for two hundred thousand, and we are trying to limit our budget because we're going to keep it as a buy and hold. So Amanda's put down the the law that we can't go over twenty thousand, and then she gave me a contingency factor of. 10%. So that's 20. Did I give 000. the 10%? Yes, you did. You gave me a contingency. Of <laughs> I'll have to 10%. roll back the recording to make sure that, that happens. <laughs> I think I have trying witnesses. to get it on record. <laughs> or I will buy off witnesses anyway. So again, we're looking at the future as all of you are who are listening to this and thinking about, okay, what direction is this going and how much liquidity do I need? So yeah, we could flip this property and I think we'd make a nice, uh, have a nice payday on it, but also keeping it as kind of our model, business model, we're buy and hold investors. So what do you do? And uh, we've kind of decided to keep this one, but also if we, if we felt like we really needed to push up our liquidity position, we could turn around and sell it uh, along with, or we could choose other assets to sell. And I think we just got to be ready to do that because, uh, when we look at our business in particular, and every business is different, but we have a very niched model in Eugene, which has a lot of student rental properties. And the good news is that there was an article just a couple of days ago that came out that said the University of Oregon is actually opening its doors in the fall. No, they're That's, planning to they're open planning their doors, to open in, their the doors in the fall. We're still under a stay-at-home order, so we're helping. That's right. That so, can... I mean, that that would be the kiss of death for us if they didn't. Because although we have a lot of things pre-rented for the fall, can you imagine the conversations we'd be having with parents and and students who who pre-lease things and then the fall semester doesn't start or fall quarter doesn't start? Those would be difficult. Um, Sucks to suck. Oh, man. (laughs) And then the other aspect of it, though, in the same article, it said, yeah, but we are expecting 15% less students coming this fall than last fall. So... We're not only trying to up our marketing game, we're also realizing we we might have some serious vac. We've never faced serious vacancy at all, but we may have some this year. So how are we going to make that up? How are we going to get from this year to next the next fall? Well, especially considering our prime like months of leasing, which I think they're going to be extended this year. And luckily, we did really well in January and February until we got. Uh, ground to a halt in March, but it's hard to, you know, with the amount of pre-leasing we do, that means that we are showing our occupied properties. We haven't been able to show occupied properties on going on eight weeks now. So it's hard to rent properties sight unseen. The good news is um, our big stuff got it, got rented and a lot of the smaller stuff, if it doesn't go to students, there's some of it that would be difficult to go like market, especially just because I, I don't think like somebody who is working downtown wants to live one block off the University of Oregon with no parking. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you know, those are going to be tough sell, but you know, it's, it is easier to rent studios and one bedrooms and two bedrooms to market uh, residents rather than have to aim for that college. But, you know, if that, doesn't happen, which I'm confident school is going to start because as an, as an entire nation, we can't remain in lockdown forever without, I mean, the economy just crumbling, which the, I the mean, real, I the real question right is what are people going to feel comfortable with? And I was, I was, in, I was interested in my own feelings yesterday when I was in that Minneapolis airport sitting at a, in a restaurant 
And it's kind of like, uh, I'm way more vigilant right now than I normally would ever be. And the question is, when are people going to feel comfortable going back to restaurants, theaters? When are they going to be comfortable going to a college football game or an NFL game? And if college football doesn't start up, maybe it'll start late and they'll do a, a truncated kind of schedule. But how about if it doesn't start up? That's a multi-billion dollar industry that is tied to the university, has all kinds of ramifications of unemployment, you know, spiraling out of control and the uh, unemployment. I usually for us. try to not let my head go down the rabbit hole as far as yours yeah. does. And I'm just, I'm just <laughs> saying that all, all that means liquidity is a good thing at this point yeah. because uh, we don't know what the future holds. We just know it's going to be uncertain. We know it's an uncertain future. Well, and you know, with regarding you know making a um, making a choice to sell a property that maybe that wasn't your intention. I can talk about a deal that's, it's kind of a sensitive deal in our company because um, we made a lot of wrong decisions with regards to this. And part of it was just all of the things going on every day and running a business, um, you know, with multiple, multiple facets and different locations and all that sort of um, stuff. So a couple of years ago, almost, it's been almost two years ago, we bought a piece of property in Portland. And our idea was for the first time we were going to develop it. We were going to scrape the land. It was um, about a half acre parcel and we were going to put 38 units on it. And we felt um, there was some zoning changes happening in um, Portland. And one of the things that was changing also was that um, they, because they were trying to promote uh, low income housing, they were going to start putting some stipulations on uh, certain percentages of your apartment complex needing to be um, affordable housing. And so actually it's affected a lot of development in Portland just because it's hard to figure out how to uh, run a property when you have to dedicate a certain percentage to affordable housing um, and, you know, and have a market property, especially if you're thinking about like being in a downtown area and needing to, you know, like you need those higher rents to cover things. So We've never done this sort of thing before. Um, we had we had some direction from some people, but um, you know, I wouldn't if I had some of the choices that we made to do over. We definitely would, but um, you know, so we we bought the property, we paid to get it developed, and we got a year down the road and realized this isn't going to work that great if we have to leave as much money on the table as we would. And in this case, it would probably be two to three million of our own money. We would, we would leave on the table and, you know, it would not, and it wouldn't turn a great profit. And a lot of that just has to do with, um, you know, the high cost of property taxes that get assessed on a new property versus a, an older property. There's just a lot of factors. And also we found that we realized that the build costs in Portland were substantially more than what we're used to in Eugene. And we didn't do our, our, we didn't do our due diligence. due diligence. We didn't, yeah. we, we really messed up. So last summer we, we were like, Oh my gosh, you know, we, um, you know, we had some things running up against us. We needed, you know, we needed to complete our permit process and pull the trigger on that or else we would have got kicked out on some zoning issues that we got in. And so we decided to sell it. And, um, you know, that didn't, it didn't work out. That it, it, We didn't get it sold. And there's a couple of things that happened there. Um, you know, I, 
I don't know how much detail I'll go into in this call, but I would say like most of the things that you could do wrong on a deal, we did wrong on this deal, starting with lack of due diligence and lack of really going in with our eyes open. We are pivoting this deal. And this is, you know, it's, it is a sensitive um, subject in our company because you know, we hold ourselves to a certain standard where we are trying to make decisions for each company that fall in line with what the other, you know, like it's to, to just to not be unfair to the other companies, because, you know, while we are multiple entities, we're all part of the same whole, uh, in a way. And so, um, we're pivoting it and turning it into, an affordable housing situation that we hope will work out. We have a lot of green lights. We've had a lot of meetings with the housing authority. Affordable housing might be, a, is a really strong way to go. So we're hoping it turns out, but I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. We're hoping that, you know, we can turn lemons into lemonade, but um, you know, our worst case scenario would be we have to dump the property and we lose many hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're, we're hoping we can make this pivot work. But I mean, I think to, to go into that, sometimes what you go in with your intention of what's going to happen, things change along the way. And you what you thought was going to work out maybe didn't circumstances change, you have to be really uh, flexible and then also realistic. Like at one point we were trying to be realistic, really realistic that like, okay, we're just going to have to cut our losses and it's going to be several hundred thousand dollars lost. And, you know, okay, we're going to have to rip that bandaid off and deal with it. And, you know, that might still be the case. I don't think it's going to be the case, but we hope it's not the case. But sometimes something that you go in with thinking it's going to go a certain way you have to, you know, you have to make, you have to be flexible to make changes. So sometimes you sell a property to pull in liquidity. Sometimes you may have to sell one to stop the bleeding, yes. which, which is a, a way less sexy topic. And I mean, I seriously appreciate you sharing that because I know this has been a sensitive deal, but I think it's important for our listeners just to realize like stewardship has been at this for 30 years and is still not perfect. Uh, you know, on a recent episode, I think it was uh, Bill or Amanda mentioned, it took them 15 years to get property management down. Um, you know, I'm I'm the newest one here and will be the first one to tell you, I, I feel like I know nothing when it comes to buying old real estate. I know how to find deals and that's that's my strong suit. But, you know, I think it's just important for people to realize that every buy and hold investor I know that's got any sort of portfolio of any sort of size you sit down and start to have like an honest conversation and they're like, oh my gosh, you've done that too. You've found yourself upside down on a deal. So I, I think it's as a podcast, uh, I love ethically that we're getting into that of like, hey, it's not all always roses. <laughs> no. And sometimes there's so much emotional baggage that you tie to a deal that you do have so much money in. And it is a real sick feeling when you're sitting there thinking, okay, how am I going to make this bleeding stop? Do I just take my lumps and move on? Do I throw more good money after bad? Like those are all, I mean, there's a lot of emotion that just plays into well, running a business. Too. Absolutely. Well, and in Portland, we were kind of, no, but none of us wanted to deal with this. We have another 
partner involved as well. His name is Jim. And I think all of us just wanted this to go away, but there was no going away. (laughs) You know, it was, but you know, one thing I would think is as, as you're who you're listening to us, you know, the buy and hold is really multifaceted. You have to have four things down. And what I have seen is that every company I've been involved with, there's probably only one really strong base. And so I think of it as a baseball diamond. The first home base is lending, is finding the money. First base is acquisition. Second base is overseeing rehab and doing a really good job with rehab. Third base is property management. You really have to have every single base working. That's also the Burr method in in other terms. But I've seen in every company I've been involved with, including my own, when I started, one of those bases in particular was not functioning very well, or it seems like it would go off the rails. So you might have a really strong uh, acquisition arm, but then you're really not overseeing contracting very well and your property management's falling down kind of thing. So buy and hold real estate investing is doing all four of those bases very well. And that takes time, energy, and focus, and maybe bringing in expertise that you just don't have. Well, right. And if you're one person trying to cover all four of those bases, those are very different bases, you know, to be a really good contractor minded and, you know, know what's covering rehab, but also to have your accounting piece. I mean, those are two, those are two things that might not be that complimentary or to have this really strong marketing for acquisitions to get that piece down. Uh, that's probably not the same piece that runs a really strong property management company. So I think it takes a very special individual that can make it work. Um, for themselves. But I do think that that also means it's a small, like you, your portfolio growth is limited, but that's also okay. I know a lot of very successful people that, you know, they acquired 10 or 20 rentals over their working life and that's their retirement. And that works great for them. I mean, you know, they, they've, they've realized a lot of appreciation. They've paid down a lot of principal, but they grew very slowly and that works. I mean, that could be a really strong wealth building model for somebody who's just looking to acquire, you know, one a year, one every other year, even, you know, two every five years, whatever, you know, your, you know, if you have to save it up to get, maybe you're not trying to do exactly the Burr method. People have different strategies and what, works for some doesn't work for all. Yeah. So we have uh, partners also that I think bring uh, a strength to the partnership on one base or the other. For instance, our, our group that's in Emporia, Kansas, uh, uh, Kyle and Jessica, Kyle really brings the second base to bear. I mean, he is an incredible contractor. He's got electrician. He he worked uh, for a number of years at a nuclear power plant as electrician and so all our electrical work is very, very uh, inexpensive. And he runs a tight ship, a great crew. Uh, and his sister, Jessica, is our property manager there, and she does great. But we're not really, really great at acquisition in that, in that partnership. It's, it's, a, it's a weak leg for us. So they're trying to do what they can to strengthen that one. But they, you'll probably come in with one really strong set of skills. And that's not a bad way to come in. Go ahead and focus on that, but look to shore up the others, whether it's a partner, getting expertise, training, whatever it takes to think about, you know. Now, Andrew, you might want to talk too, because you you brought in a brother that kind of helped you out in Kansas City. 
Well, I don't know if I brought in the brother, but he came. <laughs> I brought, he I brought the brother the, over, into yeah. life with your mother. But he, he took, than, I was oh not, God! I was not <laughs> not discussing it in that matter. Um, yeah, let's cut that. Uh, anyways, no, that needs to stay. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Phil definitely had a very good mind for property management, and um, kind of dug into that, and 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 created pretty good systems and, and sort of this, um, we're going to offer a good product and we, ex- we're going to, we're going to give you something good, uh, at a reasonable price. And we expect a lot from, from you as well. We're not going to take any grief and we're going to, you're going to fit into the system and we're going to create our, our rules for exceptions. And we're not going to make them. And so, we're, uh, outside of that and, and really building the system that's taken us many years to, to, I want to say perfect, but get substantially better. And the point where our property management here in KC is running as be- as good as it's ever ran, um, and to the point where I think I could leave and it not come back for a year and everything would be fine with the property management at least. And so I took over more of the acquisition, the rehab, and the financing aspect of it. And he's moved more towards that as well um, of late because we've been able to hire out. But yeah, I mean, different different people have different skill sets. So everybody else has shared their whoopsie or their yeah. uh, their pivot. What, what's what's one you guys have done, Andrew? Well, we've had a couple. I mean, one recently we had with regards to selling was a proper was a lot smaller than the one you're talking. Look, make making smaller mistakes is better. Although we've made some big ones in the past for sure, but we most of those we've kept actually. But one of the small ones we um, we just sold was a house that we bought for next to nothing, and it was one of those things where. Uh, there's often two big things that that cloud. Even w- once you've learned to add contingencies and check all these things on rehab budgets, two big things that cloud it and and screw up your budgets. One is the size of the property. If you buy a very big property, you don't mm. sometimes don't go up kind of percentage wise with the size of it. Um, and the second one is really really big rehabs, which often just once you start digging into it. It just goes and goes and goes. And so this was a 720 square foot house, just a little two one up north of the river in Kansas City. Bought it for twenty seven thousand dollars. It's worth about, uh, I think we sold. We ended up selling it for like ninety three. But um, you know, I, I had budgeted something like thirty five thousand for the repairs. It had a lot of dry rot issues. A lot of uh, needed all the windows replaced, all the flooring. Needed a new kitchen. Needed you know, a new bathtub and, and stuff like that, some flooring repairs. It needed a lot of work, but it's also a tiny house. But once we got into it, it just kind of kept expanding and expanding and expanding. By the time we were done with it, it was, you know, we were all into it. Our rehab was well over 50000 And we had a equity margin of, you know, probably less than 10%. Uh, and so at that point we were a little little tighter on cash we wanted to open up to liquidity stop stop just buying and holding no matter what we wanted to aim for better for really to burr out or get close or throw it back on the market and get rid of it and get our cash back and so we ended up selling that one i think we made a very uh sizable profit of like two thousand dollars uh not exactly a well done flip but uh, you know and that's that's something that that if you're low on cash and you're trying to burr, one you know one of the ways out, one of your contingencies is to sell. And so one reason, again, kind of an offshoot, I would recommend against trying to burr really cheap properties. Those thirty thousand, those those kind of ones in the wars. There's several reasons. One, you usually rehab out your equity. Two, 
it's hard, you know, often the operating expenses are more than the operating income, you know, the turnover. You need to replace expenses, a dishwasher and all roof, your equity is gone. Yeah. Roof costs the same on a, you know, a $30,000 house, a $300,000 house, at least per square foot. Um, you know, it's, they're good residents in, in those areas, but it's harder to find them and it's more likely you're going to have issues. And so, but the other thing is it's harder to sell them. They're less liquid. And the only people really interested in them are investors. And so when you have a property that's kind of in that, you know, working class to lower middle class, which is kind of our favorite area, if you need to sell it, there are homeowners who want to buy in those areas. And so not as much as in higher end areas, but there's plenty of them. You know, there are areas, so the areas I like the most are areas where it's probably 50-50 homeowners and investors. Those areas, I think, because then you can flip it if you need to, but it's also a very good hold and it cash flows. Not as well as a little bit lower than that, but it's liquid enough that you can get rid of it. Well, and I just want to add a caveat. We didn't have to sell that property, but we were kind of trying to hold ourselves to a different standard to try to, you know, to try to try something out a little bit just because our, you know, in our previous models is like we hold everything because it has worked out for us, especially we're in this for the real long game. I mean, Many eight years ago, there were tons of times where you went over rehab and those properties are worth twice as much or three times as much as when we bought them. And so we had time and appreciation on our side. But, you know, we're trying to do better as a business and really practice what we preach and hold ourselves to the standard of, you know, we're going to try to meet these things. And sometimes we are going to make exceptions that make sense because we're in it for the long term. But we're in a different position than, you know, some people. And so we, we do have that flexibility to do that. But, you know, like I said, we don't, we didn't have to, you know, Kansas City didn't have to sell that property. It was just, we just felt like, let's try to, you know, let's really try to do exactly what we're saying that we're doing. And, you know, and that just wasn't a property we were that excited about anyway. And, so, And when you get a bigger portfolio, keeping your cash reserves high involves keeping your cash reserves strong and your liquidity strong so you can stomach a rainy day and jump at opportunities and stuff like that involves making decisions you don't have to make, you know, selling properties you don't have to, or, you know, refinancing when you don't have to, or not buying something when you don't, when you could, um, to keep those cash reserves strong because it's, it's, you know, it's the accumulation of, as you get bigger, it's the accumulation of decisions. It's not individual ones. So you got to keep that in mind and think in a systemic business, the whole entire business way. Right. And that's what that decision was about, was about the whole greater portfolio in Kansas City. And, you know, and yeah, just we, you know, just because we could doesn't mean we should or we will in this case. So um, which kind of leads to an interesting uh, decision or opportunity that you've come across, Andrew, and that's the purchase of 26 houses, or they're not all houses, but most of them are. And the person who's selling them he and his wife have come to the conclusion that they're really tired of living hand to mouth with their equity position, which they have lots of equity, but they have very little cash at the end of the day. And they're kind of wanting to make a lifestyle change where they really free up their cash to do other things, which uh, is not something we would probably choose to do because we're long-term buy and hold investors. And I know that they have second thoughts about it. But we're kind of at the other side of things looking for opportunities and to buy 26 pretty nice properties in fairly good areas that that are going to be thin for as far as cash flow. But we're kind of stepping into this saying, OK, it's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for them too, to to free up cash where they've they've been so tight for so many years and just kind of fighting the 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 Burr method 
Um, and they're, they're a little bit uh, saying, okay, we're, we're tired enough of this that we want to move on. So people are at different places, and I'm sure the folks who are listening to us that are, that are a different places, you just have to evaluate your, where you're at. But, you know, in this present environment, obviously with the uncertainty, having a strong cash position is, is the thing you want to do as much as you possibly can. Because again, as Andrew mentioned, there's money needed for a rainy day and there's money needed for opportunities and you want to have some for both. Don't be too proud to pivot and admit that you went over budget or you were wrong or you didn't do great due diligence. Yeah. So on that wonderful positive note, (laughs) I think we'll uh, encourage you all to... uh, Check us out again and leave your comments, questions. We'd love to address uh, subjects that you're interested in at thegoodstewards.com. And uh, we have a free ebook for you to pick up. Uh, please do so. And uh, we'll definitely see you next week. Mm-hmm.